Hello, welcome back to another episode of the podcast. I hope that hello wasn't too aggressive and over-enthusiastic. But of course, I'm uh, coming to you at a time <clears throat> where it is the festival of lights in India. Diwali, Deepavali, whatever you want to call it. It is an interesting uh, expression of the Indian spirit, if you want to call it, man. Because uh, you put it in perspective, right? There are people who are in... Um, war-torn areas right now, maybe if you want to look at Ukraine or Syria or maybe parts of Africa, everywhere in the world. And there are live shells and live uh, missiles be bombarding their cities, their towns, their villages. Yet, we don't have that problem. But for a few days every year, we want to recreate that situation and uh, make a shitload of noise to celebrate the victory of good over evil, to uh, banish the darkness, to uh, beckon the light, the positive, the happiness. And how? Make a fuckload of noise. But uh, yeah, uh, scare the shit out of other animals, uh, put all sorts of crap into uh, the air, breathe that shit and celebrate good over evil. Yeah, that's how you do it. Indian style. But yeah, I don't understand fireworks. I, mean, I I know there are fireworks everywhere. Every country has its firework displays. So of course, some countries like Singapore is more, it's more controlled. It's like all of you must line up uh, height order in age order from nationality order and we will light off a few fireworks and we will all clap and you will do things in the very Singaporean way. And then of course, you have more wild uh, kind of what bonfire kind of, what is that, what is that thing, thing called? Uh, Guy Fox, whatever thing in in the UK where they burn shit up, but I think on a, such a large scale, chaotic kind of uh, celebr—not chaotic in a bad or good way, but just chaotic as in like unorganized uh, celebration, if you want to call it, or an expression of uh, happiness or s- fucking festivities, whatever the the excuse you use and whatever you will. Um, kind of take to soothe your conscience or to justify spending uh, money on these things. And yeah, of course, they're like, child labor made that. Some people are like, oh, it's noise pollution. But it's just such a messy few days. It's just loud. It's, and I mean, I find it personally annoying because it's just that my set, my hearing, and I think every year during this time on the podcast, I talk about it and how annoying it is. Um, it's, it's just, for me, it just overwhelms me, man. The sound is, and I think every year it's getting louder and louder. And I wouldn't be surprised. Someone just, you know, fucking great time to slip in a nuke, right? <laughs> just <laughs> which one is that? Is that is that the the Lakshmi bomb or? And actually, the, there were bombs when we were growing up called the atom bomb, like the small one, and it was pretty loud but pretty rich, right? Just these kids running around like me, going, "Oh, I'm an atom bomb, atom bomb," and. What if you actually slip in a fucking dirty bomb? People are like, what is that? That neighbor spent so much, he got a real good bomb. And just, yeah, we, we, it hasn't happened, you know. Hope it doesn't. But just saying. And if you guys don't know the story, of course, every Indian listening probably knows the story and will probably get on my case for uh, maybe not doing justice to the story. But it's the victory of good over evil, as I said. It's the Festival of Lights, also known as various other things. But it's Lord Ram who went down to Lanka to rescue Sita from the evil Lankan king, Ravan. Uh, of course, the same thing now if it's in the southern part of India, is Lord Rama went to rescue Sita, no, Sita, from the Sri Lankan king, uh, the Lankan king, Ravana. 
there's an R to everything. And that there's a dispute within Ravan, Ravana, Ram, Rama. Uh, Sita remains the same. So she's pretty cool that way. She's, she's, she's trans-border. And she transcends. And she basically wanted to bring these two guys from the north and the south together. They both wanted that. <laughs> I can't say that because she's a god, supposedly. And maybe she was happy. No one asked her. This is, of course, the story was written. Oh, he was taken away. And there were all sorts of uh, people who helped Lord Ram Rama to go get her from this uh, king. And some people say he had ten heads. Now, if you're a woman and you like certain acts performed on you, I'm just saying. Anyhow, not saying because you can't talk about that. It's about our mythology. It's about our philosophy. It's about our history. How dare you? It's an epic. But uh, ten heads versus one head. Yeah, you you do the math. Ten times uh, the pleasure. Ah, now, the thing is, update the story to 2022 model of the same good over evil. Uh, I mean, there's some issues, some logistical issues. You know, first of all, I think Sita would like to leave the present Lanka because there's no oil, there's no food, there's no fuel. What does she do? She needs to go out. It's girls' night out in Colombo and she wants to go raging with her sisters. And the ten-headed dude is like, no, but I can't let you out, brah, because there ain't no fuel for you to get in your whatever chariot electrified Chinese-made chariot which we just imported last week based on some promises made by Xi Jing. Bing! And um, she's like, you kind of can't treat me like that. Raven, R, like Connie A. And uh, you, you have to get me like my food, boy. And I don't know why. She's got an accent for everywhere in the world. She's probably like Southern American, Northeast Indian, kind of Middle State, kind of African, everything. She's like, yo, whatever. And then uh, she's like, I'm going to be saved by my boy. And he's like, I thought you like me. She's like, I do, but you ain't got, I mean, you might have all the 10 heads going for you. I don't know if you have 10 heads, but uh, you got all the 10 heads going for you. But man, I need to have a bath. I, I, this, this whole protesting thing is getting a bit dirty and tiring. And I need to go back to, to my boy. But he can't get here because fucking no flights. All the flights are canceled and all sorts of shit. But yeah. If you have any nice Airbnbs, I'd like to stay there when you go there because it's a good place, Sri Lanka. Uh, this is basically moved from Sita and Ravan's conversation to my own Sri Lankan uh, kind of trip advisor review. <laughs> Anyhow, that's basically the story. Yeah, uh, it's called Ramayana or Ramayan. I don't know why I'm giving you a North and South pronunciation. If you care, if you don't. Hey. But I try to be inclusive. Diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yes, we have a story which has everything. It has travel. It has inclusion. It has ten heads. Yeah, it's got uh, a fuel crisis. It's got an economy in crisis. It's got uh, people who are gorging <coughs> at the cost of their people. It's got oppression. It's got protest. It's got revolt. What a great... I think it should merge a Ramayana 2.0 or 2022 2.0, which involves all the present stories. And has everything up to date. I think we need to update these stories. Every book, which is about 2,000 years old or older, needs to be updated to have some current events. You need to have the hipsters and the shakers and movers and shakers of the time that uh, the reader is covering. Because otherwise, I feel, eh, these guys, you know, they seem like, oh, great people. But who knows their own quirks? And no one talks about that. Maybe, uh, maybe on his way, he, he taps some nice asked before getting to, the, to to save her. So on the way back, she's like, who's that? He looks a lot like you. And I'm like, no, no, you're just, just, just 
some people who worship me because I'm I'm a lord, I'm a god. Yeah, but he looks rather a lot like you, Mr. Ram. He looks a lot like uh, something you got up to, eh? Yeah? Uh, you need to do some stuff on the layover to, to Lanka because it's a long trip and you're getting bored with your monkey friend and your brother and things got a little heated in the overnight, uh, you know, tavern where you stayed or whatever the equivalent of tavern is in the indian tavern or the 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 shal or the shal or the school i don't know i'm just i'm just i'm just putting it out there i'm not an expert i'm not an indian history buff i'm just trying to draw the draw the world in a paintbrush of relevance and contemporary uh, candidness no clue just wanted to say another word with c anyhow that's my story and if you don't like it write your own story today's episode is with a conversation with mr olaf menike he's uh, from germany originally but now settled in australia and he's a marine biologist who works off the east coast of australia studying humpback whales a lovely gentleman to speak to about you know I've I've been reading a little bit and and I say that a lot in the podcast but I actually read one which is a fictional piece by David Hewson called uh fuck I forgot the name as you do when you just are about to mention it but I I, I what is the name of that book Devil's Fjord yes it's set in the Faroe Islands if you are not aware of the Faroe Islands it's near it's in the kingdom of Denmark but it is uh, it's got its own rules it's got its own government uh, i think so i don't know anything about the fact but this book basically surrounding the grind which is an annual uh, tradition in the faroes where the people of various towns go and they basically butcher if you want to use it or they hunt or they gather these pods of pilot whales which uh, aren't uh like regular whales with pilot whales have teeth apparently like dolphins dolphin pilot whales are dolphins a family of dolphins i don't know you'll know you'll find out because i asked olaf this question on the podcast and they basically have this tradition in these islands they also have whaling in japan so i asked him about these uh about these 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 countries these these cultures which um are on the coast of course they in the past they depended on whale meat for survival but how that has evolved and why it still happens and the reason why these whales are specifically targeted the patterns of migration the nature of the ocean because of course we think of the ocean like land it has borders it has certain physical it has certain you know borders based on uh, on on laws and, and and governance and sovereignty but the ocean is a absolutely different because there's no sort of wall separating it's an entire sort of bed that connects grows across the globe so why and how do whales view it right so you might say oh, it's an indian humpback or a chinese humpback but the whales just like it's the same fucking ocean uh, i don't have names like pacific or atlantic or whatever so we talk about that we talk about what he's studying and how the whales and basically marine life is being affected by the change in ocean temperature and all the various things that man and women and human beings are doing to it so all in all very informative and a very um interesting conversation um it's positive 
signs and there's also a lot of sad shit that's happened but um, you know the idea is not not to have a bias against anyone but to try to understand and of course yeah people who who will have a bias will have a bias not my place to change it but it was fun chatting with Olaf and i'm sure you'll enjoy the conversation as always i appreciate you tuning into this podcast till the next episode goodbye god bless take care of yourselves cheers here's your conversation with mr olaf menike only here on the soapy rao show cheers Mr. Olaf Meinecke, welcome to the Soapy Rao show. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I don't want to start on a cliche, but I hope we're going to have a whale of a time on <laughs> on this conversation. That was <laughs> yes. a, oh, a marine joke. <laughs> I heard that before. <laughs> I'm sure. <yeah. laughs> wow, I'm so fascinated because just um day before yesterday or maybe a couple of days before that I read about the um entire sort of uh the 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 pilot whales stranded on uh, the beaches of australia and then somnath messaged me and said you know olaf has agreed to do this and i'm just i've been in this space as i told you before we started where i'm kind of confused at the same time i don't want to point fingers and blame uh when it comes to the to the whaling issue right whether it's with whaling in the faroe islands or in japan or with these pods being found stranded or with the water temperatures affecting um certain species within our oceans and also how certain oil rigs or drilling operations are affecting with mammals and especially whales and their communication and their their mating patterns but but there's so much here but at the same time ignorance can also cause unnecessary blaming and hate and i don't want to be in that space so first of all really appreciate you taking the time to talk about your work and what you love doing so maybe we can start with this this idea of where we stand today with the not just the climate overall but the landscape or the seascape and how it is for our marine mammals Yes, um absolutely always love talking about whales in the ocean of course and you you said the word ignorance and it's always the um the the citation from Sylvia Earle who for everyone who is not a marine person is the David Attenborough of the marine world and so she she says you know it's that the, the greatest threat to our oceans is actually ignorance and that the reason for that is simply because we're more connected to land because that's where we live we're not yeah. ocean uh mammals you know so to bring the ocean closer to people is is quite difficult and there is so much happening in that marine environment not only you know like on on the scale of what what biodiversity and what we actually have there and what we might be losing but also in terms of changes that are happening right now we're we're seeing you know it's the ocean that affects the climate on the land so the mm. ocean absorbs 90% of the heat of the world so it's you know the ocean is the driver of everything on this planet mm. and while we live on land we're completely dependent on whatever is happening in the ocean and so you know when some places like we see it here on the east coast of australia we we see temperature increases of like 1 degree or so in in the southern parts and that actually is massive it's a lot of energy that suddenly is there um so we we're seeing we're seeing this climate change effect of course on the oceans with with big consequences for for marine life including 
my whales and and dolphins and and then we also of course have all the other factors in there that um include noise pollution plastic pollution that we always talk about you know so all that is additional to to the to the major big picture of um of what the climate change might do to or is doing to the ocean mm. so these uh obviously I want to just understand from an evolutionary point of view, because of course we treat fish and we treat uh, crustaceans as something that are food from the uh, the seas, right? And we kind of harvest them, we eat them, and of course that's, in my limited knowledge, a very small percentage of what lives underwater. And uh, recently I came across this thing about how there are companies looking at explore or not exploring or exploiting whatever the word you want to use uh, these deep sea um, undis- yet untapped resources of minerals which are in these 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 really sort of deep parts and unexplored parts of the ocean but while we know something as shallow as uh, something not shallow but i mean from a, from a depth perspective something easily found <laughs> in the shallows to something we don't know at all which could be 8 kilometers or how many ever kilometers below the ocean it's such a vast world underneath um, our feet or underneath these waves that we sort of so, so kind of trivially call the ocean but w- what is happening down there because it's such an ancient world um so the, the these mammals we call dolphins or we look at the seals or how are these species uh, when it comes to compared to human beings and compared to the land-based life that we sort of have captured how much do we not know rather than know <laughs> <laughs> yes i mean i i always so i i study humpback whales which is mm-hmm. the most or the most well studied uh baleen whales are the ones that don't have teeth um so oh, they don't have teeth most well no so they they just have these uh baleens um basically made of carotene so it's mm. what our fingernails are made of to filter right. so they're kind of filtering their food and and they're you know like blue whales which are the largest animals on earth and so mm. they are the most studied ones the humpback whales and yet i mean we we don't know what most of their actual behaviors actually mean and we haven't you know encrypted their their language um we also are i literally was just talking to my colleague from south africa and we we uploaded as part of our project 2000 um, fluke photos that we can use to identify individuals and we suddenly found that these animals are like moving all over the place that we didn't expect they were mixing with brazil and um and so you know, even the well, even some of the most well-studied animals, we don't know that much about. We know what they eat, we know where they breed, um, but you know, there is still some key elements where, you know, we look on land on elephants. Well, we know pretty much exactly where animals walk and where they, you know, where they eat and what they eat. And um, so, uh, if we then go into the deeper ocean, things get really tricky. I mean. Uh, for me to go out on the water for for a day um, just with a boat and just a few kilometers off the coast yeah. cost me hundreds and hundreds of dollars. To go out into the deep ocean, we're looking at tens of thousands of dollars. So it's the, the cost that limits us to do more research. And of course, uh, there is a lot more constraints. You've got the pressure uh, that you need to deal with and you've got 
the low light conditions so and how you know how do you actually extract information from there of course we are starting to understand and, and which is you know sadly sometimes was related to the um, gas and oil exploration and deep sea mining um, and also uh, deep sea fishing there is some information that uh, has come out from that that you know tells us something about uh, deep sea corals which are you know just like some amazing corals that are literally growing in thousand plus meters and um, they they're feed on plankton instead of using light uh, but you know there's there is some information from certain parts of the ocean where we sort of at least know okay this is what the seabed looks like and mm. and this is sort of the substrate that we're looking at and we're bringing up you know animals that you know still there's like a huge range of marine life that we haven't actually described and identified from the deep ocean. So that's why deep sea mining is something like, well, you know, it's like, well, we were extracting things from a place which we haven't actually understood yet. So there is a risk. You know, because it's fascinating. I, I mean, I respect a lot of the explorers who go to places which I probably don't even have a, a sense of courage to sort of just say you know what i'm going to go down this path where no human being's gone before and see what and let's just check out what's there right i mean it takes a lot of courage but uh, a lot of our approach in the past has been very brazen right like you go you conquer and that's the word right we conquer the wilderness and as a result you kind of treat yes. the, the wilderness what you find there as something which needs to be tamed or which needs to be controlled and humanified or whatever the the the, the, uh, the approach is and similarly um, can we? Can, I mean, if you do that with the ocean, see the on land things. You can now you have radar mapping, you have satellite imagery, and still we sometimes get it wrong. But when you go to like say something which is nine kilometers below the ocean, as you said, there's constraints of light, there's pressure where we can't even sometimes get uh, submersible down that far, and the cost is that high. And you say, okay, you know, it's cost me a million dollars to see this part, but maybe literally hundred meters away, the entire terrain changes, the entire sort of organism life form changes. So you can't just make a blanket survey, right? So how how has it been the uh, approach to discovering our under world or the, the the water world at that depth um it is i mean at, at the at that depth uh there has been some explorations to that depth but of mm -hmm. course i mean this is mostly about achieving that depth and, and there is not much time that you can spend um with sonar uh of course there is some some ways you can at least get an idea of the uh structure and um in, in some way geomorphology there is ways of basically you're lowering down instruments so from from big big research vessels but also actually from um, exploration vessels equipped with a whole range of uh, instruments to measure physical uh, data but also to you know have like tow cameras and and there is a couple of instruments that are rated to you know deep deep oceans and so you can use that to get information so basically you just grab a sample from the ocean floor you bring it up and then you're like mm. oh so this is maybe what is there and you compare it with the sonar um and then you can also you know lower down your your different instruments that give you an idea about the the uh, nutrients and also you know like what your salinity is in these in these uh depths so um then you know you've got your visual um forms as well we can like you know we we used 
um, deep sea underwater toes. So you actually have like it's like a sled that you 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 drag. Um, right. Well, not necessarily drag, but you know it's like just above the ocean floor, mm. um, and it films, and you get a live feed to the vessel uh, with very slow speed, of course. So mm. then you, but you can only cover a few hundred meters, and then it's you know that's that's it. But at least then you can start of you can start mapping a little bit what's what's down there. Um, and that's that's you know that's how it's done. Uh, but obviously, as you say, you just have uh, very small patches. Um, unlike on land, we can just you know survey with satellites, so we, we can survey entire areas and you can monitor them over time as well. Um, that's the other thing. You know, how do you how do you actually monitor something in such mm. a depth? Very difficult. Yeah, it's it's amazing because. I mean, just those, just, you know, you go 10 feet down into a swimming pool, you start going, oh my God, I don't belong here. And, and then you kind yes. of are talking about depths with a thousand meters plus. So clearly, I feel this is something like understanding a, a sentient being whose context you have no clue about, right? Not, not you, I'm saying generally human beings, when we try to understand behavior of, especially mammals in the water, like it, it's quite fascinating because we kind of, I'm trying to look at it like, oh, you know, there's a whale in the Indian Ocean. So that means it's near India. But isn't it all connected underwater? Because I, I was reading, like, I was this, I think whale sound travels miles and miles and miles underwater. And um, I, I'm, I'm fascinated to know. So is it that a humpback whale only can communicate with another humpback whale? Or can all whales communicate across, is it the word, species of other whales? Like, how does it work, the uh, network? Very, very, uh, it's a very good question and it, well going back to the boundaries i mean yeah and the, there is no boundaries in the ocean and in some way you know humans have sort of recognized the fact that there is the you know there's the, the law of the sea and it's very different to the law of you know in countries and um and it's this you know unified law of the sea uh it's very open as well mm. and then there's you know international waters which you know are accessible to everyone so we kind of recognize that the ocean is there pretty much for everyone except for some economic exclusive zones that are usually 200 nautical miles but mm. the, you know of course the mammals and the whales have have long you know uh ignored this no borders <laughs> yes they have clearly <laughs> ignored this and so they they just want to be able to reach as most like you know, make it through most parts of the oceans um, mm. to either feed or find the right breeding ground or find, you know, find their mates. Um, and so, yeah, communication, sound is the key element for all marine mammals um, in water because vision isn't actually very important. If uh, anyone has ever been diving, uh, you will know that if you've got uh, visibility of five meters or maybe 10 well that's not really far you can look so mm. you know, it's not going to help you to find out what's going to be a hundred meters away so mm. hardly ever you'll be able to even see 100 meters away so there's nothing like on land where you can see you know miles and miles so you have mm. they have developed the sound as, as a way of finding food communicating with each other and the good question is do they actually can communicate cross species well we don't know really i'm sure they will hope that they can hear each other um there is no question that certain frequencies are definitely um audible to a whole range of other marine mammals 
but do they actually know what those frequencies mean? And is there confusion about what one whale was just saying and then it was just another species? Uh, we do know that they actually have, like the pilot whales, they have individual calls. They actually know each other literally by name. Um, and that's why, you know, when we look at these strandings, there's a lot of confusion when you've got 300 all calling out at the same time and everyone is like trying to find out where his mate is. So, um, you know, it's it's a sound is is the actual form of communication and survival in the ocean for marine mammals. And actually, there's a lot of fish species that use sound as well. And there's shrimps. And so, it, you know, it's sound. Sound is, is all that that matters a lot in the marine environment. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to to understand, you know, this language thing, right? Because we, we kind of, you know, the moment we say language, we automatically think it's, you know, English or French or <laughs> German or um, or terrestrial based boundaries even, right? Like the moment you say a language is associated with a certain national identity yes. or a certain region. But I'm just, it's remarkable that, you know, we have the arrogance to go, you know, a tiger found in India is the great Bengal tiger. And we probably, dolphins are found by by the coast of Mumbai. It's like the Arabian dolphin. But <laughs> there's clearly no such <laughs> thing, right? It's literally this dolphin or this 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 whale is just saying, you know, you can call me whatever you want. But I I have the, the run of the oceans <laughs> and I can go wherever and, you know, find. But... I mean, I want to understand this thing of like if, you know, we talk about carbon sinks and we talk about certain waters that are more polluted because of, uh, you know, whatever the, the mining operations or whether it's the, the, the harvesting of, you know, uh, man-made fisheries, what, what not. I, I, and even recently I read about how uh, uh, these, these, these no-fish zones have now suddenly um, led to, to people discovering these mammoth, uh, not mammoth, but huge uh, great white sharks because there's no threat to their hunting ground they just go in feasting on these these fish i mean there's no man fishing so they have like 25 foot great white sharks so uh, i just want to understand what is uh the and i kind of asked you this but with with our the the the, uh, the oceans absorbing so much carbon and you have so much oil spill and you have all these toxins and now just recently the gas spill happening in the baltics is there any kind of pattern where you see these whales escaping that to a purer part of the ocean or is there any part left that is uh so-called pure i don't know if that's there is no pure <laughs> <laughs> there is definitely no pure part anymore as as what we would define pure you know prior human mm. um, influence and so you know the deepest ocean has plastic cups now you know it's oh, great that definitely definitely no one needs them down there mm. um and and so there's no no place that hasn't been impacted and what we find is that um rather than escape because i mean while the ocean is a wide open space it's not like we like to think it is you know this homogeneous environment because oh it's all water but that it, it's not it's actually it's a, it, there's very small niches and areas that are suitable for living and surviving. And then most of it is actually just a desert. There's not much to eat out there and there's nothing out there, literally nothing. So oh, whenever wow. you put a little structure somewhere in the ocean, everyone gets super excited because they finally have something to hang on to. So it's <laughs> more that these areas that are suitable for feeding or breeding 
they're not as they're not as big as the entire ocean and so what we find is that the marine mammals are adapting to the changes and the pressure that's being put on a great example literally just been out um in one of our busiest sort of uh waterways here and there is hundreds of boats and noise and like fishing lines and plastic and there's these beautiful bottlenose dolphins most of them are female they have decided to stay in this area for some crazy reasons and they adapt so they're using now the pontoons that are used for the boats to chase their fish in there and then the fish get trapped under the pontoons and then they just pick them off and so there is this amazing adaptation and i think we find this with other you know species throughout the entire marine mammal world where these highly intelligent animals they know that there isn't another place where they can just go to and explore a new habitat because it's actually not that much there um they just adapt to the changes that are happening including my humpback whales too because they are changing their feeding areas and their breeding areas and they're shifting their timing of migration and so a lot is a lot is happening that's hard for us to to actually just you know get in heart and facts because we need to be out there the whole time but mm. we get a lot of studies and information from around the world where there's a number of great examples where we see that no the mammals actually don't leave they're actually trying to adapt so more like a human approach actually we're usually mm. also more the kind of species that tries to make the environment work as it is and then transforms the environment to something that doesn't work anymore but <laughs> Yeah, you can't kick, out, kick us out that easily. We we <laughs> we should have been gone a long no. time back. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so why are we seeing some of these uh, more and more of these stranding uh, incidents with um, with uh, uh, you know whales and these pods of whales? Well, it depends on where what species we're looking at. So strandings in general, worldwide, the trend is definitely increasing. Um, and also, if we look at, you know, the ratio of number of marine mammals that we actually have still left and the number of strandings compared to what we had, you know, mm. like 100 years ago. Um, but it depends on the species. So if we're looking at the pilot whales that uh, stranded, recently in Tasmania again, the same place again, like two years ago, uh, there isn't a clear trend that this has actually been increasing. There is, however, you know, that sort of concern. We are seeing these strandings happening in shorter frequencies and the impact it actually has on the population is higher because there is other stress factors shoot for like food shortages and um you know ingestion of plastic in particular for pile wells or you know the fishing industry also harvesting the squid and so there is other pressures that actually are important to consider when we're now looking at stranding so you know like a thousand years ago the pilot well population was able to afford the loss of a few hundred but mm -hmm. other about like are they able to do this now under these current circumstances and then there is you know the general trend of stranding is related to um noise pollution injuries of animals like we're, we're looking you know at at some of the whales um 50% encounter rate of fishing line in there throughout their life somewhere um, a study in the in the US um, was showing uh, and that is 
that is significant. Like that is an impact on the whole population because these animals are actually either going to die from the fishing line, which is the worst case scenario, or they just suffer, you know, suffer for a couple of months and it will probably stop them from breeding um, for another year or so. So there is, you know, there is that. And we know, you know, some of these animals get so sick over time that it takes them months and months to die, but then eventually they wash up or, uh, we find them, you know, on a on a beach with with entangled gear or ingested plastic as some of the sperm whales. So that there is that sad trend of increased strandings. But again, we need to look at the different species and there is the pilot whales which have always been stranding and always been mass strandings. And there is a there is a plausible explanation for it, which is this gathering of super pods is designed to create genetic flow and a mix between them because they're usually very tight in their social groups. So they hang out all day long and they would love to do this forever, but that's not so good for the gene flow because, you know, you mm. don't really want to spend too much time with your uh, relatives. Uh, and, <laughs> and so it's good to have a mix. And that's what these pods, these super pods are sort of for. So they're coming together um, at the start of spring and in the summer months to to also raise um, their the, the, the newborns and, and the calves. Um, but then, of course, if they have these tight relationships and there's two or three of them are not feeling well or they're really confused, they're entering an area that is a trap, literally a whale trap for for pilot whales. And then they have friends and follow and then they have friends again and they all follow and then everyone is in there and because everyone is calling for their friends, it's complete chaos and no one knows each other. It's like us being, you know, in a in a bar and there's panic and then everyone just starts screaming. You you're just gonna mm. run against the wall or you know, so it's a pretty unfortunate name for a, a species that gets you can't find its way around that easily, right? Like <laughs> I exactly said the same thing the other day. I was like, a pilot whale that you know, they just keep getting lost all the time. We should just call them differently. And yeah. uh in, in German in German and we I'm originally from Germany, we, we mm. call them uh, uh Grindwale. So um which is uh, from don't know if it means grinding <laughs> right but probably not yeah. but at least it doesn't it doesn't mean pilot <laughs> yeah i think it, it, it just i mean i'm sure if like the, the whales were like what are these guys calling us is it like mocking us because it's a, at least call us occasionally you know get stuck <laughs> pilot whales or something yeah. Like that. yeah that's right um, uh, so, i mean uh, is that why I, I they know, are hunted there, there is the there is a there is a reason I remember um, because the sailors used to think because the, the the pilot whales had the tendency to be ahead um, of the sailboat in front of it and then ah. it was the idea that they were leading the sailboat somewhere so that's where it originated from. <laughs> yeah, maybe leading the ships to another stranding <laughs> that that would be smart. <laughs> 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 yeah, so everyone gets yeah, that's right. <laughs> but so are pilot whales the same as killer whales? Oh well. I mean, they are they are in the same uh, group, so we're looking mm. at two whales, and I mean, it's a bit misleading to call them all whales when they're actually just big dolphins. Um, so ah. it's just you know sometimes uh, common language doesn't really match reality or what actually is happening. So we've got you know the largest the largest two whale is the sperm whale, um, mm. and it's technically a dolphin because it has teeth, uh, pretty big teeth to keep hold on to this really big squid 
and the giant oh, squid, and right. then we've got the yes, and then we've got the the killer whales. The orcas are the second largest, and and then the pilot whales are sort of actually following on that. They're you know pretty big, uh, sometimes even two and a half tons, even more, um, and so they also have teeth, and they're also technically just a big dolphin. Uh, that's okay and the, and, the, and the actual whales are the ones that kind of sift their food they filter they don't have teeth they have the the the, the form that's the, right yes right, okay. that's right so the you know what what we in 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 our research call the classic whale is the is the filter feeder the mr cetes or the baleen whale who they are not as they're still active hunting, but they're not need. They don't not need to socialize necessarily to be successful in hunting. Whereas all those dolphin species, they don't have much of a chance to survive by themselves because the prey that they're chasing uh, tend to just swim away very fast. And you can't really, if you don't have hands and you're in the middle of the ocean, it's really hard to grab something. But even if you have hands and trying to grab something that tries to swim away from you, it's very hard if you've ever been trying to fish with your bare hands. So, you know, try to do this with your mouth. So that's why they have these tight social groups because they basically just help each other chasing the prey to to each other, um, which is, a, you know, an amazing um, adaptation to survive in that sort of very different environment to, to land. That's, uh, you know, when it comes to these... Um these these fishing or whaling traditions right whether it's uh, in japan or in the faroe islands why a uh, couple of things here i want to understand and this the second part could probably apply to larger um sort of fish of, of whales in the ocean uh which we eat but why is uh, why is it okay or why are the licenses given to hunting pilot whales but if it's dolphins they're not okay with it and I think there are a couple of parts to this. I think the second thing is now we said there's an abundance of, I mean, not there is, there is an abundance of man-controlled fisheries. Uh, so why is this original food source, which was so important, like the grind in the Faroe Islands was done because they needed to freeze or needed to salt meat or whatever for the winter because food is scarce. But now clearly mm. things have changed. And finally, I think, because of all these plastics being consumed by these mammals and the fish, isn't the meat itself tainted? Yes, it is. I mean, there is the the accumulation of of toxins, which mm. are actually, of course, originated from our activities on land, uh, mm. persistent organic pollutants that actually sadly accumulate um, on both sides of the polar regions the way that you know, our global system's design is that mm. actually those particles um, are being concentrated on the poles and they they concentrate in those feeding areas for some of mm. most of uh, of the um, whales. And so, you know, there is there is the fact that in that fat tissue where, you know, all the um, all the fat is being stored is, is also accumulating. The, the toxins and so mm. um it's actually quite unhealthy to eat this uh and in some regions it's it's actually so bad that you know it's it's dangerous to consume um and of course i mean you know at fish with, with fish is exactly the same thing it's just they they have a short lifespan and they don't actually accumulate that much fat in the tissue because mm. they they don't they don't have that warm blooding need to you know store store temperature um 
But, you know, it's the same issue. Bigger fish, of course, will accumulate more of these toxins. And it depends on the region on, on where you obviously go to. But we know that in some regions you've got, you know, more than 50% of the fish have plastic in their tissues already or in their stomach. So, mm. so yeah, could you talk about the earlier part? Because I kind of just sort of loaded a lot on on your plate before um, <laughs> with, with this, with, with, the distinction between dolphins and pilot whales and also why these traditions are being so strongly held on to? It's something I thought about the other day because I've got this uh, discussion, of course, every time um, I'm talking to people here or, or um, running one of my expeditions. And it's it's interesting that, for instance, uh, a nation like Australia um, if you would go out here uh, publicly and you would say, look, let's just hunt and shoot dolphins and whales, you would not survive for very long, like in mm. the political arena. Like there's not one politician who would do this and who would actually, you know, go go out and, and make such a statement. Like everyone here is actually loving whales and dolphins and it's really they're really highly protected. And so I'm like, why is this? Because... Australia is a young nation in the sense that, you know, the people, unfortunately, the majority of people who, it's changing, but like, you know, we all know that obviously uh, the traditional landowners um, haven't been in governance uh, so far. And so there is this uh, sort of new culture that doesn't, there's no, there's no history of, no clear history um, of hunting whales, so even though it is actually a whale hunting nation here that stopped whaling in like the 70s, uh, so mm-hmm. not that long ago. But it's not embedded hundreds and hundreds of years ago, like where it's like, whoa, we've always been hunting whales. So you go to Norway, which is, mm-hmm. you know, one of the richest countries on this planet, and the excuse for going out there and hunting whales is it's because tradition. And I think, you know, there is it's embedded in the society that this is what we used to do for thousands of years. And so, you know, we've got the right to do so. Um, but, you know, then I, that, and, and I think that makes a difference. So uh, of course it, I, I, you know, have then to ask the question, well, I mean, only with only because we've been doing something for a very long time, it doesn't mean it's actually still good. Right. I mean, it's the same yeah. thing. If you, if you don't, if, if you can access your food somewhere else, do you really need to go out there and, kill these animals when you actually know that well we can't even kill them fast and you know i'm not saying you know what happens in any other kind of meat industries any better in any way but at least we've got this knowledge there and you know yeah it's it's not necessary like Mm. we have other ways of of surviving and only doing this because of tradition i don't think that's actually justified Mm. Like the fox hunt, right? It just, it's just, I don't know. It, it feels like a lot of it is, you know, because I can, I will. And you kind of throw that in with modern equipment like mm. uh, motorboats and thing. It just takes the game, it takes the sport, which a lot of people say, I live for the sport. It takes it out of it, right? Like it's, it's big game <laughs> yes, hunting. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, if we, if we look back at uh, what whaling was like at, at the start 200 years or 300 years ago and all in other traditional cultures, it was a, a, a life-threatening undertaking. It, it yeah. you know, it wasn't possible to get more than one animal and there was always a very good chance that 
a few of the people went out and never came back again. So mm. it was a very different thing. And no wonder it was so embedded in the culture because it was so dramatic and it was yeah. so important for the society and for, for the village, you know, that if they finally brought back actual meat and food, well, that was fantastic because it meant survival, but they also lost probably people in the process. So mm. I do understand the importance, but I think, you know, there is a need for a cultural shift, of course. And, um, uh, you know, like here in Australia, traditional landowners, they did not actually actively hunt the whales. They just waited for them to wash up when they're stranded. And it was actually a food source and a valued one. So it's, um, it, you know, there's different approaches of like uh, valuing yeah. the marine mammals that were there. Um, and yeah. And, and now, I mean, it, it gets, it, obviously we see it around the world like that has changed. Whaling isn't really very popular in most nations therefore whale watching is yeah. um and and so that's i mean that's a great way of cultural shift and it's it's, it's you know it's fantastic they can see like oh you know like in in nations that don't have that long history or uh that sort of deep embedded uh history of whaling it was easy to shift like in australia like that cultural shift happened within a few decades or within like 20 30 years and it's like wow whale watching is big you know it's millions of dollars and thousands of people per day that go out and see these animals i'm glad that shift is happening but what i don't get and maybe this is coming from ignorance is that you mentioned that there are certain specific communications that uh, certain kinds of whales can achieve right like uh, they have specific frequencies whatever they can recognize a single whale so if that's the case and if these are mammals that are intelligent and they are able to recognize threat and they're able to recognize survival of course um, why do they keep going back to these places where they're being hunted like um, especially more frequently than other places. Of course, they might get stranded and that's there are occurrences like that. But if every season there are thousands of their kind being slaughtered, why don't they communicate this threat? Like, especially if it's one whale saying, hey, Frank just got killed. Why, you know, I'm not making light of it, but <laughs> if, if that's the communication yes. happening underground, sorry, Frank, I didn't mean to kill you, but... Um, why <laughs> why do they keep going back to these hunting grounds because it seems like that's the same uh, waterway that these that runs past these countries yes and that that comes back to what i said earlier like the ocean looks um as this big big pool of water that is accessible from all sides and you can just swim somewhere else but it mm -hmm. is not like this because you if you move somewhere else you're going to either have to make a very big detour to get to your food source, which will actually kill you because of the amount of energy that you need until you get food is actually, you know, a really high risk. So then the other alternative is maybe to swim against a current that will also take you more energy. So it might be more beneficial to be closer to the shoreline. So they will take mm. that route and, and even with the risk of, um, you know, of being killed. And I think... I mean, we obviously don't know, but we're pretty certain that, um, you know, a number of these species will do cultural transmission about dangerous. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we, we see it here with, with some of the, um, with the shark nets that, you know, they're, they're sort of catching well sometimes, but they only seem to be catching the young ones. So, like, why don't the adults not get caught? And 
I mean, clearly not every single adult in their life would have seen one of these nets as a dangerous. So they might have been actually communicating about this and learning about it. We do know that the you know the the, the mothers train their calves to migrate at a certain route and tell them what you know they need to do to find the way back. Um, and so surely they would be able to tell each other that there is a danger. Um, but it might also get lost, which is the same thing. They don't have books. They don't. They don't have, you know, hard drives, and and mm. it might just get lost in in generations quite easily. So thinking about the pilot whales, like why, why don't the pilot whales like have that cultural knowledge that you know, oh, if you if you go in this area, you're probably going to end up in Whale Trap Bay. You know, like all our cousins and friends died there a thousand years ago. It's a mm. evil, evil place. But it seems to be lost because everyone in there who actually knows about it Was just killed. died. So, mm. yeah. So, you know, and, and the, the few that survive, they don't have the connection that you know existed before to, to their part. So it seems that, that that information is just then getting lost. Um, uh. And then single-stranding whales, you know, they, they, they don't really have, um, you know, they don't, they don't meet enough other uh whales of their own kind to have an impact so you know i mean if one whale makes a mistake because it just ended up swimming in the wrong direction it, it might actually tell this to its you know offspring but yeah, it just yeah. be one is yeah. that you know is that going to be enough to impact the whole population probably not so they're all like still doing what they used to do um and then i think the biggest reason of course is if if there is a risk area it's still often the only option to go to because there is currents or there is a longer route that will risking them to to die on the way because they starve. So, you know, that's that is for me the most plausible explanation as to why this keeps occurring and why do they you know, why do they go to an area where they were hunted before? But we do actually know on that note though, um, that there has been avoidance in the feeding area, uh, in particular through the increase of the industrial whaling, which was was these you know steam powered boats and horrible gunships and you know literally a war on whales, and we know that in that time period, in particular the humpback whales that we are studying have avoided certain parts of the feeding areas where the hunting pressure was the highest, and they have not returned uh, to these areas even though there was food available. And this is where you can definitely see an avoidance. Um, and an effective one that was actually transmitted over generations. They have not returned, and they're only now in some places, you know, start to return to to these areas. Or you know, it took them a few generations or uh, two or three. And I think you know that is, I mean, there's definitely some change happening in in the in the space of you know telling someone not to go there because it's dangerous. But um, it's uh, it's a tricky one because mm. yeah, the ocean yeah, I was looks thinking... big, but it's you know, there are people like you and in, in your field studying various aspects, right, from behavior to mating habits to language. And, mm -hmm. you know, you to some 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 sense have 
records of the communication, right? That I, I don't know what the right word may be, whether it's the frequencies or the the, the pitch that they yes. communicate. So maybe, you know, this is just an idea. I mean, this may be completely silly, but since we have all these records and we have mapping, satellites, sonar, radar, all these things, and we have AI, machine learning, and we have drones, what if we have like a solution where we plant this drone underwater with the language of a certain, say, kind of whale, and that becomes... Uh, associated with a beacon and this thing becomes almost like the savior the drone saves these whales and takes them through all the safe parts like almost like google maps for whales <laughs> you know all this this is a safe area go through this <laughs> yes, way safe traffic area um yeah. i mean i i ironically i've actually thought about exactly that we could we could have um stoner barriers that actually mm. you know basically tell them this is a danger zone we know that you know if if you would play back um, the the sound the vocals of a killer whale of an orca to to most of their possible prey species, if you do that to a humpback whales, humpback whale, they will like leave the area immediately. And mm. so it's very interesting, even though they might have never heard the song or the vocals of a killer whale, mm. they still know that that means danger. So there is the cultural transmission and clearly because they're, I mean, intelligent. So they must have some form of, you know, communicating this. So there would be like, you know, certain uh, frequencies that, that we, if we finally understand uh, whale vocals um, in their full with the help of, AI as is it's currently actually being being trialed right I mean there is this, this really interesting study underway to mm. see if we can decode uh, the language of whales so when we can find that uh, that specific frequency that um, tells them to just uh, move away uh, that would be that would be very helpful because you could definitely um, you know create little warning signs <laughs> for, yeah, for you know, high stranding risk areas. Yeah, I think one thing that might work is, I don't know if they've tried it, but playing Justin Bieber's music, it might scare them. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) There's a good chance that will work, yes. Good chance, right? I don't know if it's been tried, but you can tell them it's um, a heartfelt recommendation from India. Oh, no, it's fascinating, this work, you know, such a world, and I I just love the the information and... uh, but how is it for you as a marine biologist? I mean, maybe just talk me through how you got into this space and how is the world um, as a marine biologist? Like, how is the sharing of information? How is this this thing of, is it a common interest? Are everyone working towards a common good? Or even here in this field, do you have, this is my territory, don't sort of step on my foot kind of thing? Yes, yeah, so I am... Um... I I've I've actually been not the kind of person who was oh I'm like you know maybe five years old six years old and I said I always want to be a marine biologist yeah it was more just by coincidence that I ended up in this field I was always very interested in in the environment and I always wanted to save animals um, even when I was a kid and it's because the way I grew up was a lot of animals and so. It just meant a lot to me. It just didn't know which way it was going to go. And so it was literally just a coincidence that, you know, I, I ended up going to Australia doing my PhD and then I was sort of 
doing this in the marine environment and I started to be really fascinated. I started surfing and being in the water every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I learned a lot about, you know, the competition between colleagues and working on different species and the competition for funding and source resources. It's um, mm-hmm. it's intense because, you know, the, the sort of idyllic image of the marine biologist being out there on a boat, you know, just uh, having a dolphin jumping with the sunset in the background. <laughs> it is actually not like that. Yeah. It's actually more like, oh, I'm sitting in front of my computer for about 15 hours and I'm trying to finish this grant application. Oh, wait, there's also the publication I need to finish and my PhD <laughs> student just sent me an email. Oh my God, I can't, I forgot. I need to do the permit. So this is more yeah. like it. And there is a lot of pressure on on how you can actually literally survive in this field. Um, but... There is obviously the moments when you're out on the water, like I was today, and it just, it pays back for all the trouble. And of course, you know, in the marine mammal world, there is a lot of people that like working there. So there's collaboration, Mm. there is clusters and there is, you know, competition, but it's, you know, I mean, there's certain people everywhere in the world that you can, cannot work with. So there's always some people that, that you're not able to work with but then you know there's always others you can work with and so it's it's you know you can concentrate on these but the 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 competition and that's a problem academia and all research uh is that because we're competing for these resources it doesn't necessarily translate to the best possible outcome for the societies because Mm -hmm. we are starting to try to survive which means we're reinventing the wheel we're researching the same things over and over again because no one would want to fund something where you don't already know the outcome. It's becoming very difficult to just go out and say, look, I just want to study this because I think it's interesting. And maybe Mm. someone down the track 100 years later is going to benefit from it. You know, the guy who Mm. invented the toaster, I don't know if he just said, oh my God, I just really need to have my bread, you know, toasted. So I'm just (laughs) going to make this. Maybe he just played around with it and now became the most important thing. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> no, and, and that's the sad part, right? We need, everything needs to be um, shown to have an outcome in a foreseeable future that will benefit or solve a problem that we are facing. Mm. And I think that approach sort of just takes yes. away the imagination, takes away takes away the possibility of, because these species are, been here, I mean, everything from us, we've been here for 200 million years or who knows, maybe longer. And a short-sighted approach clearly hasn't helped, right? Because that's what's led to this. But... How is it looking, I mean, from where we stand today with all these various things being bombarded uh, at each other from climate change to global warming to to, to sustainable um, energy to fossil fuels to these to to less and less drinking water. So what is the future for um, these? What's the word? Is is, is it what is the species? Is it site? No. uh, what do you what are the words word, the word for whales? Oh, the cetaceans. Suggest. The cetaceans. Cetaceans, right? I was like, I yes, you, you 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 cited you cited the cetaceans. Yeah. Um, yeah, the future, the future of them. It's a it's a tricky one. They are going to be some species that are capable of adapting, um, because they are intelligent and they will find ways to survive. And of course, there is going to be some like the vaquita in Mexico that are just simply um, not going to make it or the northern right whales. Um, 
So I think there is going to be a changeover in the number of, you know, species and the diversity, but there will be there will be marine mammals around because they are they have shown that they can handle the most difficult, you know, environmental conditions to live in. So that gives me hope in the sense, well, even if we make it really, really difficult for them and hard, I mean, we try to literally kill them, kill all the whales on this planet. And we were not successful, thank God. Thank but, you, yeah. you know, it's it's just, you know, it gives me hope that they will they will make it, even though there's a lot of challenges ahead and they're actually already being challenged in many ways. So um, working with humpback whales, for instance, gives me that feeling because I can see how, how they are actually handling some of the impacts, you know, that mm. they are increasing their vocalization, their frequencies in, in noise polluted water, or they just tend to talk and communicate more at night when there is less boat traffic. So mm. there is, um, you know, there's adaptation happening. And, hope. and and hopefully with the work that people like you and your team do, we can reverse this negative trend and maybe see a flourishing situation for uh, the species that have a tough and we see a better um, environment for them, hopefully. But that's amazing the work you're doing. Thank you so much for sharing what you do. And I want to ask you something before we wind up today. Hmm. Um, you spend, of course, a lot of time filling up applications and dealing with bureau bureaucracy. But... Um, yes. As you said, a lot of it is made up for when you step out on the boat. What is probably your most memorable encounter with a uh, whale? Um, it is it is indeed the moment when a calf, a young um, whale, only a few weeks old, uh, was coming over to our boat and... Um, just very curiously checking us out, but also turning around. And we're talking about, you know, like less than a meter here away mm. from me and the boat. And so turning slowly around and looking up and, and you know, the classic moment of like looking into the eye of a whale, but just that moment of connection that you get um, is just to the day you know i've been out there for for so many years and i've seen so many whales and i still get so amazingly excited when that connection happens and when you when you just look into these animals and you realize that they are checking you out as much as you check them out you know they're studying you as much as they studying as i'm studying them so that is that is the the most beautiful moment and moments because they come sometimes more often um uh, the more i'm on the water the, the more chances i have to look into the eyes of a whale <laughs> well i hope it happens for the rest of your life because it just sounds like something i can never i can't imagine it but it's <laughs> amazing it sounds like that 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 beauty in something living and something that connects just mind-blowing thank you for sharing that because it must be really really special right it is it is very special it keeps me going to um to to do and fill out the application and do the administrative <laughs> side of things to, to keep your head <laughs> and above it's, it's water, a great way right? <laughs> yes to get <laughs> to keep my head above water and it's a great way of also connecting people to the ocean because you know in those times um when when we were out a few days ago and we had 
an animal like breach right in front of the boat as as basically a sign of like look i am the strongest in the group it was the escort of a mother and calf so it was actually trying to show off that um he was or she um was the protector and that full-on breach was just everyone stopped no one was taking photos we had 20 cameras on the on the boat but no one took it single photo no one had their phones up it was just looking at this gigantic animals coming out of the water and splashing right in front of us and and as was just yeah it's just it makes people aware of a the size of the animal of course but that there is something very very fascinating in the ocean that you know is is actually so different from land um and we we really need to protect it and thanks to people like you i hope that happens um olaf thank you so much for joining me and if people are interested i know you you conduct these 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 um what's the word maybe expeditions or these these humpback <laughs> yes i conduct little research trips yes research exactly. trips. so can people who are not uh, marine biologists or people trained to be marine bi- biologists join you on these Absolutely. So, I mean, I don't run many of them. I I only did two this year. I might do a few more. They're a lot of fun. We have basically three days together and um, everyone can join. We have a training session or like I call it a little workshop, but where we get to know each other. And it's it's like a it's a, a very different experience for people that, you know, like to actually know more about the animals, but also just share it with people who they f- who they know and get to know because if you're on a well watch boat you're you only have like a few hours but you also spend it with very very different people that you don't even talk to and it's not like you want to just scream necessarily in front of everyone when you're getting excited of seeing a whale but that is the most important thing you need to be out there and be excited and feel comfortable to be excited and so that's what these small groups do and we do uh research um as well so we collect well skin and we collect a lot of data together but um no one is no one is forced to actually collect data everyone everyone can volunteer to do so <laughs> hey that's brilliant no so the they can head over to where, where can they find the details if they're ever uh, near you in australia if they want to join or someone yes. sitting in india wants to um, join you yes absolutely so there's uh there's our webpage from our organization called Humpbacks and Harriers so it's it's just www.hhr.org.au and um it, there is a tab there for for expeditions and mm. we'll tell you all about it and there'll be I'll put up new dates for next year our season is wrapping up in the next uh six weeks um but uh, I'll offer a few more next year so brilliant i'll put the link in the in the show notes description i keep saying show notes like i have to sound like a proper podcaster but yeah i just put the link where it's found <laughs> so <laughs> you can join olaf and uh, learn more about the beautiful world that he he's immersed himself in thank you so much olaf it really has been a pleasure and means a lot you taking the time and sharing um, about everything that you've discovered and continue to I really enjoyed our chat. I enjoyed uh, venturing into the ocean uh, with you and and being able to share some of my my um, experience and knowledge and excitement about the Brilliant. marine environment. Thank you so much. I I I'm terrified of going even to a swimming pool after watching jaws. So you'll need to convince me to get into the ocean. 
<laughs> good, very good. Yes, Jaw did a lot of did a lot of damage, um, yeah. and uh, I actually uh, I I had the pleasure to meet Valerie Taylor, and um, and she she kind of knew what she did there. After all, you know, she, that was never really the aim of of that jaws but um mm. unfortunately you know after it actually came out it was it was doing the opposite of what she wanted to do um and she really changed and and you know started fighting for sharks and protecting them and uh it's 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 great to see you know her work and legacy that actually in some way derived from this jaws that um you know, she took also as a reason to stand up for the sharks. But that's just as a side note. <laughs> yeah. No, it's you never know what the f sort of fate of something turns out to be, right? But no, it's it's great. Exactly. And uh, yeah, lovely, lovely, lovely chatting with you and uh, all the best with every future project of yours. Thank you, Sophie. <laughs> Cheers. Thanks. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you like what you heard, please do check out the other episodes on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast. And I would much appreciate it if you could like the video, share it with people who you think might enjoy it. And of course, do subscribe to the channel because it will help me and the podcast grow and reach more people just like you. So thanks again. Appreciate it.